Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fishtails. Today's guest, I have Alvin Huang. Alvin, please introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Thanks for inviting me on the show. I'm super glad to be here. My name is Alvin. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm currently a release engineering manager at HashiCorp. We can kind of dig into what that entails a little bit later on in the show. Um, we had met when you actually worked at HashiCorp for um, a little bit of time, and we had chatted in one of our, I believe, one of the chat roulette sort of sessions that we have. So at HashiCorp chat, the there's a bot called the Donut Bot in Slack, and anyone in an, a particular room gets paired up every two weeks or so in this chat roulette sort of style. So for remote companies like HashiCorp, where everyone's in a different place um, and people don't all work together just due to team splitting and, and things like that, um, we're all um, we're able to be paired randomly with someone else in the org that we normally wouldn't talk to. And that's kind of how we started chatting with each other. And, and that's kind of where our origin story starts. I love it. Yeah. And it was great because, yeah, it's ran you're in this channel. There's, you know, however many people in this channel, you don't know anybody you're meeting these people. And I was like every single person I could connect with on some like kind of personal level. And so, yeah, it connected the two of us. And immediately I was like, where do you live? And you're like, I'm in the DC area. I'm like, but where? And it's like, oh yeah. So, you know, the area. Yeah. And so, um, not too far from where you were. I used to live in the Herndon area and then, and then Alexandria. So yeah, we had that in common. And I miss. I don't miss the traffic, but I really miss the food up there. Man, there were so many good places to eat, and I miss the people. There was such a great – it truly is the melting pot. People talk about New York and stuff, but, man, there's so many people from everywhere up there. Yeah, for sure. There's just um, – I, I pretty much lived here my whole life, so I grew up in a suburb in Maryland called Rockville. Um, it's probably about – 30, 40 minutes from where I live now in Falls Church. But my parents kind of raised me and my brother there. And then I also went to University of Maryland for college. So still around the same area. This is pretty much my home and, and all I've known all my life. Um, when I was graduating college, there were opportunities to go out on the West Coast and you know join some of the tech companies out there. But my family's all around here. So it just made more sense for, for me to stick around here. Uh, a lot of people kind of think about the D.C. area as just all these government jobs, which there are plenty of those and, and government yep. contracting and whatnot. Um, but there are now after COVID, um, there's a lot of, you know, these sort of startup remote jobs as well. And there are also a bunch of other larger sort of private um, private sector companies here in the area. But, yeah, the the food is great. Um, the people here are great. It's it's very much a melting pot. Um, I think that's kind of what makes the food so great is there's just so many different cultures and people wanting to bring the things that they had back in their home country here. Um, and that's the best sort of food, right? It's people that have cooked this and, and brought it back from their countries more so than people trying to replicate something just based off of what they know or, or from a visit to another country for vacation. Yeah, I will say everything that I've experienced in that area, the DC, Northern Virginia area, I didn't go to the Maryland side as much, um, but everything on the, in DC proper in Northern Virginia, it was all very authentic. When I've compared that with what I've been told is very authentic food, everything in that area has, has held up. Yeah, it was a, my first introduction to true Vietnamese food was in Reston. And that still has stuck with me as like, that is the bar, good Vietnamese food. I think of what I experienced at that yeah. restaurant. Yeah, I think sometimes, so So I've like, I, I've been on a few vacations recently, but my most recent one um, was I actually traveled to Utah to visit all five of the national parks over there. So Bryce, Arches, Canyonlands, Zion, Capitol Reef, um, all out on, all out in Utah. Um, I was out there for about, 10 days or so. Um, and the more places I go like this, where I, I look on Yelp and you see like the sort of reviews of where people really enjoy eating and what they highly regard there. Um, it's more or less like there, there was 
one Thai restaurant. So it was like, okay, like, yeah, this has got to be the best one, right? <laughs> it's the, it, it is it's, the restaurant. Right. It, it's the one, right? Um, but I think some of that is just, you know, living in this area where we're kind of just spoiled with some of the best food that, that I've had um, throughout all of my travels as compared to other places where it's like, you know, four or five stars. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Um, but obviously they don't have that sort of access where they are versus, uh, like a big metropolitan melting pot, like we do here, like we have here in DC. Um, but getting back to the traffic thing, that's one thing that I really enjoy about working remote is I don't have to deal with any of that. Just, uh, just this past weekend, um, like I've told you off, off the show, I was in North Carolina for a wedding, but I actually drove down there and drove back up off of. 95 down in the Raleigh area. Um, and on the way down, it wasn't too bad. Uh, I had left during the middle of the day trying to kind of beat traffic um, in between rush hours. Just hit a little bit of it down when, when I got very close to, to the Raleigh area. But on the way back up, it started raining a little bit. And then there was like a car that looked like it had caught on fire and just a, oh, a, a whole mess on, on 95. So it, it definitely took a little bit longer to get back home yesterday than, than it took to get down there. Well, every time that we came South and we would go back up there, I, I took 95 North one time and uh, it's not bad on the weekends, especially on Sunday, because they have those lanes for people that are not familiar. They have lanes that they, they have two extra two or three extra lanes in the middle of 95 that they change the direction depending on time of day, day of week. And that where did those start? It's like south of Woodbridge. It's a yeah, down. Yeah, I don't I don't really go down there that often, so I don't know exactly where it starts, but yeah, somewhere in like the Woodbridge or Occoquan, like type some area down there, yeah. And and it's about like 30 or 40 miles of these sort of like express lanes. Um, and those do help a lot. Um, it kind of depends on, you know, the, the goals of these lanes are to keep the sort of um, like 55 to 65 miles per hour on these lanes. So it's dynamically priced. So the more cars that are on the lanes, the way that they kind of deter folks from congesting it and, and keeping it at that sort of speed limit travel is by raising the prices so less people get on them. Um, and I remember, you know, maybe probably about 10 years or so ago now, since we haven't had like a super large snowstorm in this area, there was a time when I was driving home, I was still living back in Maryland at the time. It was about 40 or 50 bucks to take like these, <laughs> these express lanes, you know, during a snowstorm when the outside lanes were a lot more congested and everyone wanted to take these lanes. Yeah, that's crazy. $40. It's like, how bad do you want to get home quickly? There were a few snowstorms about a decade ago or, or between a decade and 15 years ago. And I feel like it's not been a bad one since then. A decade ago, uh, where are we at? We're 2022. Was it 2013? I, th I think it was 2013 when there was that really bad one. No, it was 2014, the really bad one that hit Atlanta. And Atlanta froze up and got ice. It shut down the airport. There was ice everywhere. And I was living in Atlanta at the time. And it was horrendous. Anyways, yeah. tangent, Unre not relevant. Um, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> snow's a pretty fun subject. Um, I, I enjoy it. Uh, living in this area, we do get all four seasons generally. There hasn't really been much snow, maybe like an inch or, or so in the last, probably I think like last year, there was maybe like cumulative, like seven or eight inches of snow altogether. Um, but yeah, back when I was in college and in high school, there were a few much larger storms. And I remember in college, folks would actually go to the cafeteria and take the cafeteria trays because, you know, we, we didn't have like a Toys R Us or Walmart to, to go grab sleds um, near college. And people would grab these cafeteria trays and go sledding down down the hill on the back um, behind the behind the behind the gym. And from then on. Uh, in the winter time, they just took away all all the trays just in case. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, okay, shutting this down at the at the root. No, no more. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about college for a minute. So, what did you study when you went to school? What did you study in college? Yeah, I think I I mean compared to most folks that are in the industry, I, I had a pretty 
I guess like linear, <laughs> linear path to, to where I am. So I, I, starting from a fairly young age, my dad worked in like the IT field ever since I, I could remember. Um, we started kind of just like building computers from scratch uh, when, when we were younger and that kind of was my first exposure to computers as a kid. Um, I really enjoyed just using them, obviously like playing games on them and whatnot as a kid growing up. Um, but that kind of got me interested in computers. And when I went to college, uh, it was kind of just deciding between computer engineering and computer science. And at Maryland, those were in two different schools. So one was in the, I think it's like CMNS. So I think that stands for like computer, mathematical and natural sciences sort of department. And then engineering was obviously in, in the engineering school. Um, and for me, my decision there was, you know, as a, as someone who really enjoyed just tinkering with computers growing up, um, I wanted to understand how both the hardware and software side worked, as opposed to just the software side and, and writing code and how that piece worked. And that's how the computer engineering major is kind of formed there. There's no specific computer engineering classes that we had to take. Um, it was the curriculum was about half electrical engineering, where we kind of learned about circuits and about the motherboards and things like that and signal processing. And then the other half of it was through the computer science classes where we learned about software, databases, algorithms, those sorts of things. Um, so I did. I thought like for me, that was just a, that was very eye-opening to kind of learn both sides of it rather than just one. I'm, I am very deficit on the electrical engineering side or computer engineering side. And it's always fascinating when those concepts connect for me. Like, I'm just like, Oh, yeah, like the light bulb goes off. And uh, have you seen these videos on YouTube from a guy named Ben Eater? I don't, that doesn't ring a bell, but maybe. Okay. So Usually I just like endlessly scroll on YouTube and I'll just like watch random stuff. So I, I, I probably have encountered these videos. They're pretty popular and he sells a kit. Well, he sells a parts list and he sells a kit where you can build, um, there's a really famous microcontroller. Uh, this is not my forte. Maybe, you know, uh, it's a 6802 or an 8602 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, microcontroller and he sells a kit. So you make a breadboard computer out of three breadboards. You make this little, uh, microcomputer and he's got all these videos and it's really neat. Like there's a most recent video that just came out, which he hadn't made videos in a few months or a year or something. And this video just came out. And so it was all like, Oh, Ben Eater is making videos again. And the thing that it was on was, was how he was adding RS 232. So the little serial port, he was saying RS 232 support. He talks about sending signals and like, like how the baud rate affects things. And that's something that's bit me a dozen times over the course of my career. I've, I've had to tinker with hardware off and on and I'll connect to something through a serial port and I will forget like to go look up what the baud rate will be. And I'm just trying to use my like terminal or whatever at whatever default baud rate 9600 or 9800, whatever it is. And this, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm ignorant to all these things at the time. Like, what is the baud rate? What does all this mean? And so it was fascinating watching that this weekend. Yeah, he sets everything up and he has an, a, a scope, digital scope, oscilloscope, so he can see everything. So literally when he pushes the letter B on his keyboard and it sends that signal, you can actually see the bits, how they're represented, you know, on the oscilloscope. And so that along with these games by Zachtronics, have you played any of the Zachtronics games? No, I have not. <laughs> it's too much like work. I don't know that you would enjoy it at all. It's very much like work. Like it is literally like if you want to know what it's like to be a programmer or electrical engineer working on this stuff, the Zachtronic games are a great like, you know, gateway drug to all of this. But yeah. anyways, I digress. Just like it's been good. Like all of this is connected for me over the past decade. And I'm jealous. Like I'm jealous. I realize now because my degree was not in any of this. I have, I have a glorified art degree. And now it's very obvious to me, like, oh, these are the sort of fundamental things that I've been missing. I don't think they've made a huge difference in my career, but there's definitely places where um, I, I've heard the term mechanical sympathy. And there's definitely places where that would be better if I understood more about, like, how is memory actually functioning with the processor? Why does it matter that my code operates in a certain way that I put memory you know, align memory a certain way, all those sorts of things. Anyway, so yeah. I'm out of my depth with all of this stuff. Yeah. So. And I think, I think some of that is something that, you know, I really, 
um, I really got lucky in, in the year that I guess I graduated and I started in the industry. So I graduated college in 2014. And my first sort of job was to, so I worked at a company called Semantic. Um, everyone kind of knows that as, you know, the antivirus company, which they were. Um, but I, I, I started off my career working in a group called Managed Security Services, where their job was to basically send these things called collectors out to customers. Um, as the name kind of says, these collectors would collect network logs from all of the various devices that a, a customer may have, um, basically send it back to, to us. And we would have some sort of backend engine that would process these logs. And we would have analysts then look at these aggregate events from these logs to say, okay, like, was there something that was benign? Is there something that we need to notify customers about and, and sort of that stuff, right? So it's like this sort of like outsourced managed security service. Um, and my job there was to, so to build a collector, um, we sometimes would get these PCAPs from the vendors for what the log lines may look like so that they were able to be parsed correctly. And, and each collector for each device kind of has differing log lines um, between companies and even between models of, of the devices within like the same company. But some of these companies would also kind of see us as like a competitor to them. So they wouldn't send it to us. So we would have to kind of go through this process of procuring these devices, running tests through them to generate these log lines. Um, and then the developers were able to, to build these collectors. So when I first started off my career, um, we had a lab full of equipment and these were sort of um, VMware, like ESX hosts that we had, um, NetApps for storage, a uh, bunch of Cisco switches, Juniper switches to kind of handle all of that stuff. Um, but these were in like a physical data center inside of a semantic like building, right? Um, and then we would also hook up these test devices that we would get um, to run these tests through. And that was like my first sort of exposure to, I guess, like a private cloud is what we would call it nowadays. Um, sure. Like, like your private sort of data center. Um, and I think a lot of folks these days right now, now with AWS and, and all these cloud providers, um, everyone who kind of starts now is fairly spoiled with not having to deal with any of this stuff, right? So I remember, you know, like having to get the, the clips that go into these racks out yeah. Um, like cutting your fingers, trying to squeeze them, um, trying to rack like this huge server that you had to rack with like two people. And, you know, if you don't get it on the rail, then, you know, you're, you're going to have to make sure that it doesn't land on your toe or something. Right. Um, but it, it gave me a really, you know, good understanding and appreciation for what actually happens with this cloud thing that we always talk about. So it's not just going into the AWS console, just launching like an EC2 instance using Terraform to do it or whatever. Um, some, there are people that are still doing that job. We just don't see it. <laughs> yep. I worked with those people when I was at MailChimp, uh, I worked on the, the team that supported th that team was data center operations. And I worked on the team that supported that helped them manage their inventory with the software we wrote. And yeah, and it's, and the other thing is like, people don't appreciate the working conditions of having to work in the data center. It is uh, extremely noisy and the temperature variation is interesting too, especially since we cared more about um, green data centers. It used to be data centers were frigid, like the whole data center was just cold all the time. And now it's less so um, you can, the way they, they route the air, you can have stale areas where you can actually just be sitting there sweating because there's no air movement around where you're at and it gets hot and stuffy. But yeah, but having to work on in, down on data center racks. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, Hats off to the people that do it, especially like when you're working on live racks and you're on the hot aisle. So for people that don't know, you generally like the fronts of servers face each other and that's a cold aisle and air blows up and it pulls the air through. So both sets of racks are exhausting towards each other on the other sides and you get the hot aisle and it can be like 120 degrees in that hot aisle. And it, it's gross. I mean, it's just miserable. Yeah. And I mean, as as my career progressed and as we kind of moved out of these data centers, um, the sort of transition there was rather than us all going to the data center and racking stuff, you would send these boxes, you know, 40 or 50 pound uh, servers to 
to your rack, and then they would have what we called smart hands, right? And and you would tell you you would log a ticket with Equinix or something. Uh, you would tell them, you know, this is where I want it, and then inevitably, right? You got to like go on your server, flash the light for for which cable you you want them to unplug or replug, or 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 which switch port you want it to go in, and inevitably they're gonna pull something that you know. <laughs> That like shuts shuts down your your whole network connection to the whole data center. <laughs> um, so you have to get out there anyway. But you know that that's like the logical progression of it, right? It's like you don't have to go anymore. There's a team there that can kind of do this on your behalf that you give access to. Um, and I remember even getting to the data center and, and getting through all the security measures. Right? They would have like you know depending on what sort of data center it was. There's like fingerprint scanning or like hand scanning to get inside the door to like the waiting area, then maybe they would have like a biometric, like sort of like retinal scan or something. Um, and then eventually, you know, you would get to like your cage and your cage would have like a key or, or some sort of access card to get in there. So there are, there are a ton of these sort of levels of security so that folks can't just go and, you know, unplug all your stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of logical progression of things is, is something that, that I, I encountered over the years. Have you seen the latest stuff from Ubiquity? I think was who was doing it, where they have the VR, not VR, AR glasses that if you are looking at a switch, it will draw all these little like switch port labels in oh, AR yeah. for you. Wow. And it'll tell you like what VLAN a port is on and all kinds of stuff just yeah. by looking through the AR glasses. It's slick. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. None of that was available back in the day. <laughs> back in the day yeah. eight years ago was yeah. that right eight years ago yeah something like that but you know eight years ago technology was not what it is today so it's definitely advanced very fast so you got out of racking and stacking and you got hot hands or smart hands to do some stuff for you uh and then what where did you go after semantic yeah so after semantic i went to a company called FireEye. um they're now not called FireEye. they well they Back in the day, um, FireEye was a, another security company that a lot of folks from Symantec went to, which is why I kind of had looked at it. And it was also in like the Herndon Reston area. So they're out of Reston, Symantec was out of Herndon, but they're basically about like 10 minutes away from each other. Um, so it was still in the same location and, and I knew a lot of people that went over there. So I started talking to a lot of those folks and back in, I think like, 27, 2018, I believe, is when they acquired a company called Mandiant. And Mandiant did incident response type stuff. So when there was the large Target, Anthem, Home Depot, like sort of credit card breaches and whatnot, um, they were the company that those companies called in to figure out kind of what happened and figure out how they could make their network more secure so that it doesn't happen again. Um, so I worked for the Mandiant group of, of FireEye, which is based out of Reston, doing similar stuff. Um, so they were, it was also a managed, managed service, but there it was less of this sort of, uh, I guess, lab infrastructure engineering and more, more DevOps type work. Um, so there, our stack there was using Puppet, um, KVM, using, using a tool called Foreman that would kind of provision these, uh, these hosts. And, and run Puppet on them. And then we also had the, the normal like Jenkins Artifactory, um, yeah, Jenkins Artifactory stack and whatnot that most people are familiar with. So Foreman rings the bell. Does Foreman use proc files? Was that how it worked? Uh, I don't recall. It, it is like a Ruby tool, but I, I don't recall exactly how it worked. Yeah, it rings a bell, but gosh. I haven't seen that used or mentioned, heard it mentioned in a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so you would kind of make configurations with with Puppet. Um, you would basically give a host like a specific sort of like hierarchy configuration, um, and then based on that configuration, you it, it'll know how to like when you launch a host, um, it'll know how to set that host up based off of what configuration in, in Puppet it, it's supposed to it's supposed to get. So Hira, that's another one. Yeah. Oh boy. Let's talk about Hira because some people had very large configurations, very complex configurations, but had very reasonable configurations. So what did Hira 
uh, look like for you all? Was it was it very complex and unwieldy? And did you have e encrypted YAML, e YAML shoved in there everywhere? Or yeah, there was there was some e YAML for some of our, our secrets and whatnot. But um, in terms of, I, I think the complexity just evolved with the sort of um, the sort of work we were doing as the team evolved. Right. So some 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 of it was when there was only one data center that we had to manage, um, everything was fairly easy. It was all in one mono repo. And then there were other data centers that we wanted to, to spin up. And some of these data centers weren't even in the US, right? And, and weren't running on the same sort of infrastructure that we had in the data centers here in, in Northern Virginia. Um, so based off of that, there were other configurations that we had to um, we had to provide. And that kind of expanded that configuration set. Um, so there's always this sort of concept of dry and standardization that, that we always try to achieve. Um, but some of that can only go so far just based off of the constraints that you have with the infrastructure or, or the or the systems or software that you're using. I have a, a controversial opinion. I think dry, especially in infrastructure-related work, I think dry is overrated. I think it's significantly overrated. Yeah. Like it makes sense with the idea that, you know, you're deriving certain facts about things from a common source. Sure. Yes. Dry. But I feel like it gets, I think a lot of these patterns, a lot of these things of dry, you know, don't repeat yourself uh, for folks that don't know what dry is. It means don't repeat yourself. And it's this idea that you're not going to have two pieces of code performing similar functionality. I, I prefer to phrase it as have a single source of truth because sometimes the data, yes, you want one piece of data. You want that single source of truth, but maybe it makes more sense to have two pieces of code somewhere that are doing something different with that data. Anyways, yes. that's my like thing. It's very controversial with, with most people because I'm I'm not anti-patterns, but I just feel like patterns get so overused. They, yeah. They're used as a crutch. Yeah, and, and I think I think like when, when I think about dry, it's not necessarily just code repetition. It's kind of taking things that are similar and, and building libraries with them, right? And, and a library is a, is a place where you can store these sets of functions or common functionality that you can then pull into various um, various other repositories of software that also do the same thing. But just to like reduce lines of code, you, you get into all sorts of other side effects with that, um, especially on a team like a DevOps team that, that I've worked for the majority of my career, you know, like we own a specific set of configurations and then the people that we service usually are our product engineering teams. They own another set of configuration or, or things that are more specific to their product that we don't know that much about um, or will own the sort of CI/CD aspects of their pipeline, but the uniqueness of them is different among products, right? So if we try to make things that are too black box um, for someone like them who aren't in the weeds of what that pipeline may look like, if it's just you know, give me like an entry point, I just call this one script or, or I call this one function, and it does quote unquote like everything for me. Um, it hides. A lot of that complexity, yeah, but it also makes it super difficult for them to even know what's what's going on. Yep. There's a an art to the correct abstractions. Yeah, exactly. So you were broadly working around the same sort of stuff I was working around. It's like DCIM, Data Center Information Management Tooling. Have you kept up with any of that? Have you kept up with any of the open source projects like Netbox that have kind of emerged? No, not really. I mean, mostly because I just don't work that, that much in that space anymore. Um, but yeah, there there were a bunch of open source alternatives to it. Um, there were, I remember using tools like Infoblox to kind of manage networks and um, all, all those sorts of aspects of it. And a lot of that is super important um, because if you don't have an inventory of what you have in the data center, uh, it gets really difficult to you know, tell smart hands where to plug things into or, or where to move things around. Um, so documentation, it, it, if, if people think documentation is important now, right, it was even more important when your data center was, you know, a flight away, right? You couldn't, you couldn't just go down the street or, or go down to the, 
to the floor under you and kind of go to the go to the data center and, and look at those ports, right? Nobody was really there. And you, you really had to make those port diagrams or make those network diagrams prior to going so that you built it in that same way. And any changes that you made while you were there racking and stacking, those should be reflected in those diagrams because no one's really going to go back to the data center for, for months, right? Does that influence you as a software engineer having that experience? Yeah, I, I never really thought about it until now. Uh, <laughs> but I do feel like as I, I think one thing and I guess we can get into this now, but I think one thing um, that kind of held me back from moving into management a little bit earlier was just that lack of like documentation that I had. Right. So a lot of a lot of what I did and what engineers kind of naturally do is we care about implementation or the execution of a particular story um, or a particular sort of feature that we're writing, right? And anything that is outside of that, such as things that happen before or after that implementation, we kind of neglect or we kind of push that off to the, to the end of the project. Um, and by the time, you know, that project is done, we're already moving on to the next thing. So a lot of that gets neglected, right? And moving into a lead and, and a manager, a lot of those aspects of a project of getting the right stakeholders in a meeting, right? Making the right plans for software, making sure that your requirements are clear and concise and have what the end users are looking for and you're building the right thing, um, as well as a documentation at the end makes it that much easier for them to use, right? So if you build a platform and it can be the, the best thing in the world, but if nobody knows how to use it or it, or it's super difficult to onboard to it, they'll just go and build something themselves instead, right? Or, or it doesn't meet the requirements that they're looking for. Um, they have no impetus or, or no reason to, to use your stuff. So part of it is documentation and, and making sure that the tooling that you build is easy to approach for folks. Um, but that does come down to um, making sure that the diagrams are clear, the goals are clear, the requirements are clear, all, all that stuff that happens outside of writing the code itself uh, becomes more and more important. I guess the more senior you get and, and as well as you know, working in like the, the lead and management side of things. So I think you touched on something that is, uh, I, I don't know, I guess there are two thoughts I have is one is like, you know, where do you draw the line with what is the engineer's responsibility? What's the developer's responsibility? Because at some point, developers' time, it, 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 it's not necessarily that a developer's time is precious, but you try to be respectful. You, you, know, you do have tech leads, you do have managers, you do have product managers, you have program managers, and in these bigger orgs, you have a lot of different layers. You know, and, and so I think a lot of engineers, they miss the opportunity to think about those things in bigger orgs. I think when you're at a startup or a smaller org, um, or especially anywhere where, um, as we said at uh, HashiCorp, drinking your own champagne as instead of uh, eating your own dog food, but drinking yeah. your own champagne, that you're not realizing what the end user is going through. Um, so that was like the first thought, you know, was they, as you were talking to us, like, you know, some people are just insulated from that. Like they are literally, they go to work every day and they work a JIRA backlog or somewhere, a ticket backlog, and they are not thinking about the cohesive picture. They don't have a holistic view of everything. And the other thing that came to mind when you were talking to that is like, you know, there's a whole thing now around that, that is developer experience. We're now starting to talk about DX or DevX developer experience. And for, for us working with technical products where developers are the customers or that your API becomes the product. Um, there's that whole thing around developer experience. Yeah. And I think, I think it, it kind of depends on the person, right? So some folks, you know, like that are maybe early on in their career. Um, I have some folks on on the team that are, that report to me that aren't um, that aren't ready to kind of do that sort of work, and that's totally fine, right? We will, like when you're first starting off your career, you start off with kind of smaller to medium sized features. You're able to show us that you're able to deliver on these things before we give you a little bit more, a little bit more, and those folks aren't haven't been in the industry kind of long enough to understand the holistic picture of things, right? So going back to what I was talking about of understanding how 
the infrastructure, the servers, the networking, all of that stuff works like in a data center. Like they just don't have that sort of holistic view of things until they've built a feature, right? And, and once you've built something, then the next one builds on top of that. And then once you've built a couple features, then you kind of know, okay, holistically, how this system works together, right? And then maybe you'll start off writing like an RFC. So at HatchCorp, we have this concept called an RFC. Um, and that's basically a document to lay out a new feature that you're writing, kind of describe what the background is of the feature, why it's required, what it's gonna provide and its purpose, and then lay out some of the implementation steps that you're gonna go through to, to get this done. And the purpose of writing this RFC down is to be able to share it with not just your colleagues on your team, but other folks around engineering, um, especially in release engineering where, like I said, you know, our customers are the rest of the engineering org. There are a lot of folks that the stuff that we build, um, they may be the consumers or users of it, right? So they need to be on board of, and understand what we're building, why we're building it, what value is it going to provide to them, um, and make sure that that RFC covers any sort of edge cases that we may not have thought of, uh, or any sort of specific unique constraints that one one particular product has that we haven't thought about. So we kind of jumped ahead there too. Well, so let's let's jump back just like for a second. So you you eventually made a Tashicore. Yeah. Some way or another, you get this job at HashiCorp. So what did you start doing? When you first got to HashiCorp, what were you doing? Yeah, so, yeah, sorry. I did. I, I jumped a little bit too far ahead, but but the origin story is kind of interesting as well. So when the, the way I got here was back in, so I started at HashiCorp in January of 2018. And back then at my previous company, FRI, we were also using like Terraform, Console, Vault, a lot of the HashiCorp tooling. So I was just following HashiCorp and Mitchell like on Twitter just because of the products and, and knowing when new stuff was coming out. Um, back then, there was really only like a handful of job recs and Mitchell was still tweeting these job recs out. So I saw there was a, there was a job rec for a release engineer that he tweeted out. Um, I don't think I responded to him directly on, on, on Twitter, but uh, I reached out to some other folks that I was following on on Twitter about this sort of role. And I got in touch with some of them and asked them, you know, what were they looking for in terms of like what they wanted in their cover letters and whatnot. And that's kind of how I applied to HashiCorp. Um, it was through just finding a job on Twitter. I guess it's, uh, I guess it's a very... Gen Z type of way to find a job now, but <laughs> but I would say back then um, it it wasn't as uh, it it wasn't the the path that most folks would go to 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 go and find a job. So when I first started, I was the first release engineer at HatchCorp. I started when there was probably about maybe like I don't know exactly how many people were here, but maybe like 150 to 170 folks somewhere around there. Um, and there was another release engineer who started like the week after me. So, so both of us kind of, um, were the two people that bootstrapped this engineering services org. Um, and that org now is much larger, um, uh, maybe like 30 or 40 people. Now I wow. kind of kid with people that I really enjoy everyone I work with because selfishly, like I was the one that hired like 80% of them. So, nice. so it great. Did, until we had enough people to, um, fill those interview loop spots. Uh, I was the one on, on everyone's interview loop. And I, I don't think I would have that opportunity opportunity again in my career, unless I did join another startup that early. Um, but when I first joined, I was hired to be a release engineer, but no one, I, I was basically tasked with owning all the systems that engineering teams used, but nobody owned, right? So this included like AWS, GitHub, Fastly for our CDN, like all these different systems that, yeah, everyone used, but nobody had a clear owner owner for. Um, and as we hired more and more folks, and as the pillars of engineering services kind of split off, um, there were different teams that took over those infrastructure sort of pieces of it. Um, and then I was able to focus more on release engineering. So in terms of release engineering, that sort of discipline is focused on 
pretty much everything that happens between developers getting code up on GitHub, which is like our, our source code repository, and what happens after that to get that software built, comp compiled, built, um, packaged, tested, and code signed, notarized, all of, the, all of that stuff. How does it get from someone merging a pull request into GitHub out into our HashiCorp releases site and, and get that software eventually in front of our customers? So there's quite a bit of software at HashiCorp, and there's uh, a few languages in use, but the primary languages, I guess, now are Ruby and Go. Um, are there particular challenges that you feel like you face? I'm not asking you to spill the beans on anything confidential, but do you feel like there are particular challenges? I know, like, the registry was new. The Terraform registry was new around the time that I started, and it's only grown yep. since then. Does that fall under your purview? Is that kind of spun off into its own group, or...? Yeah, some of the, so the registry itself is not something that we kind of support um, and neither are like the Terraform providers groups. So they're kind of, the biggest challenge that we have at HatchCorp is just the fact that there's open source projects and these sort of private internal projects, right? And having to have logs and credentials to, to run tests, to run things on the public side is a lot different than running it on, on the private side. So that that's probably the biggest challenge that we have. One thing that I really enjoy about working at HashiCorp is a lot of folks, even like back when I started more so than now, but back then it was pretty much everyone was a senior engineer that was hired from a previous company. And all of these folks that were senior enough would have done the sort of release engineering, building pipelines, building CI pipelines for their particular projects at wherever they came from. Um, so they all have opinions of what CI tool they use, uh, whether or not they hated Jenkins, you know, what sort of issues they ran into, those sorts of things. But everyone that we've talked to here um, kind of has the understanding that the release engineering team is the subject matter experts of this particular field. And if they don't have to manage it or, or touch it, uh, they don't really care or, or give their opinions um, too strongly of what we choose to do and what tooling we build. Oh, I will tell you, I was spoiled. So for, for people that don't know anything about this, which is probably most people that will listen to this. So when I joined, I was pushing out my first PR and, and I was working on Terraform Cloud. So <clears throat> I edited some Ruby code and it needed to you know, go out and modify the database and release the latest version of the app. And there's a bot in Slack called Waffles. Is it still called Waffles? Yep. Is that still a thing? Yep. That's yeah, awesome. Waffles is still around. And, but it was so slick. Everything was so slick that as an engineer, I didn't have to even care about that. I didn't have to care. I didn't have to know. I didn't have to care. And I was very spoiled. I mean, that was great. It was literally, I could lock the environment. There were, I remember if you called it locking, maybe you called it locking. It reminded me of Puppet and the way you yeah. could lock an environment, but I could claim, you know, I could go out and say, okay, look, I'm doing a database thing. So no one else can deploy. I'm locking this. I could do my database migration. I could push my code out and it was all done through Slack and yeah. it was slick. And I'm, I, to this day, I proselytize that. Now I've carried that I'd seen chat ops before, but not to the degree that we were doing it. And I have carried that forth at other companies and other teams. And I have, I have been like, Hey, this is the way to go. It's neat because it is centralizes credential management. Uh, we had a little kind of a funky workflow with the whole, like, you know, edit the repo, put your Slack ID in this one list and the special repo, but still it was really neat that it centralizes credentials. The bot has this, you know, God level credential access where it can go and touch all these things that developers don't need. And then you're giving developers that paved path, that golden path to go and do what they need to do for their job. It worked really well. It was, it yep. was really good. I'm so, I was so spoiled. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Waffles is still around. Um, we love the bot. And I think like the chat up sort of model works great, especially for a remote company. Um, because as a developer, I think the less systems that you're interacting with, the easier it is for you to, not have to context switch and maintain your focus, right? So if I have to look at, you know, 
a Jenkins UI to look for CI build failures, and then jump over to GitHub to look at my code, and then jump over to Slack to talk to all of my coworkers and and kind of surface these areas that I saw in this Jenkins server over here. Um, that's already three different systems that I've had to spend time changing context to. And that's time away from the code that I'm writing. So chat ops is a great model to kind of keep everything in like a single pane of glass. And usually that's, that's through Slack, um, but it also makes it easy for us to be fairly opinionated with what we want users to do, right? So one is the sort of notification aspect of it to get the information in front of not just you, you as a developer, but maybe folks on your team that also care about this deployment um, so that they know that the environment is locked, right? Or they know that this release is going out. And the, the second aspect of it is if we need users to take some sort of action, we can make it clear there um, rather than having it be like, okay, you read through like thousands of lines of logs and there's like a little action that you need to take like at the very end that you'll probably miss unless you're looking for it. Uh, the waffles for that had the emoji reaction, which I thought was the best way. I was, I'm, I've, you know, full disclosure. I mean, maybe y'all saw that somewhere. Maybe there is some hidden chat ops handbook of like, thou shalt do this thing with chat ops. But that was the like slickest way to do this. Like the waffles bot would post some message and it would tag you with your username and you would go give it a little emoji reaction, like a thumbs up, and it would, it would do its thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know too much about waffles. I, I used to work on it a little bit more back when, you know, I was kind of like one of the only ones on the release engineering team. But now we've we've built this platform that we call CRT, which is our common release tooling platform. Um, and that platform is the way to get software out to Docker Hub, ECR, our release site, Red Hat registries, all that stuff, right? So as a product team, the only... We only have credentials stored in our what we call our CRT vault system, um, and there's no, you know, GPG keys in like one pass that you can copy onto your laptop to to release software or um, signing keys and and things like that. The only way to get artifacts out to our public sites is through this pipeline, right? Um, so we, even as a release engineering team, like we don't have access to all those credentials to be able to, to push that button ourselves. Um, and that's kind of like the next evolution of what, what we're building at, at HashiCorp in terms of release engineering. Um, and hopefully it, it definitely has helped a lot with just the maintenance of all the pipelines that we had. So previously we had release engineers embedded on each of the product teams to kind of help them out with their own CI CD needs. And that created that while that helped each of the teams, it made it difficult because there was no sort of centralized like standardization of what, what we were building. Um, and then the HashiCorp cloud platform came along and we didn't have like that, the, the HashiCorp cloud platform grew in number of employees so so much quicker than we could uh, we could hire for an embedded release engineer on each of those teams that we kind of came back together as a centralized team to say, okay, is there a way that we can build centralized standard tooling for every team to use rather than having one person be like kind of like a, a consultant for each of the teams? Um, so that's kind of how we got to this like centralized platform sort of model. Um, and it makes it a lot easier because, you know, if we wanted to add legal requirements or if we wanted to add like security requirements to our platform, we just do it in one place and everyone benefits from that without having to ask each release engineer that's embedded on the product teams to go do it for, for their own products. Yeah, that's nice. So you're, you've done all this release engineering work at HashiCorp and they made you a manager. So how did that happen? How did that come about? And are you enjoying management? It's different. Yeah, yeah. I so I've been an IC for well, it'll be five years at HashiCorp in January. So that makes me like pretty ancient in HashiCorp times. <laughs> um, but three of those years were, or I guess like four of those years, were basically as an IC. So moving as a release engineer, 
to senior release engineer to the lead of the release engineering team. Um, and then for the last year, um, I transitioned to becoming a manager of half of the release engineering team last December. So I'm almost at a year of management now. And I really do enjoy it. Um, it's definitely a place where when I first started looking at making that transition, um, I think one of the biggest things was just making it top of mind for my manager to know that this was something that I wanted to do, right? So, you know, you would have these sort of career planning sessions, you would go over the career matrix, and then, you know, folks would express like what their interests are in terms of their goals, what they wanted to do in like five or 10 years and stuff. And Back then, when when I first started off my career, I was like, oh, I wanted to be a manager, right? It was very, like, very hand-wavy without any sort of direction or, or kind of, like, umph behind it. And just keeping that top of mind with my manager, um, I felt like my sort of biggest, I guess, um, the, the way that I could help out engineers the best as a manager was become a manager for this particular team. So there were other management opportunities elsewhere at HashiCorp. Um, and I just felt like I couldn't just pick up any sort of software engineering manager job because release engineering is fairly niche. And I've been on the team long enough that I knew how to help everyone through all sorts of issues that they would run into. And also in terms of career planning, I, I had my career progression in release engineering. So I know how that career progression worked. And I felt like that was the easiest and most influential way I could help out folks being a manager. So are you still writing code? Uh, sometimes, uh, I would say maybe like 20% of the time. Um, I mean, I was the one that kind of I, I had I was the one on that led the team that built out our CRT platform. So it was me and three other engineers. So I still know kind of how all that stuff works, um, and it makes it a little bit harder for me to like get away from it because I was the one that you know I was I was the one that was in the weeds building it from the ground up. Um, but a lot of that stuff, like I don't manage anymore, you know, I'm not the one that's responsible for the code. So I can't, I can't be writing any code that's in like some sort of critical path for delivery, um, of a specific feature for, for the, for the teams. Was that a hard transition for you? Was it kind of like, oh, that's my baby. I can't let go of it. Or were you okay handing it off? Yeah, I think in the beginning it was, it was kind of hard, but our team just has a bunch of really smart engineers. Um, and I trust them with the system and, and making decisions for the better of the company and for our team. Um, and I'm not in there as often as they are to understand what the intricacies and, and issues that they're encountering are. Um, so it was in the beginning, it was fairly hard to kind of transition away. Um, but now, yeah, I, I don't really miss it at all. So <clears throat> I have a uh, question. We'll end on this because I know we're, we're about out of time. And I think HashiCorp gets remote right. I've been a, I've been remote since 2012, almost 100%. There was like two years in there. So 80% of 10 years, eight years being fully remote. And HashiCorp being a remote first, fully remote company, I think they get a lot of stuff right. More right than I've seen other companies get. And then this, the pandemic hit. And now everybody's been quote unquote remote. And, you know, if people get me talking on the subject, I'll say, look, this isn't real remote. This isn't really remote. You know, so many companies were forced into working from home, but it's not the same as being intentional and, and working remote intentional. Um, so I don't know. I would assume having that you, you've stuck around Ashcore, you agree that they get a lot of stuff right. Um, Everywhere can do things better, certain things better. So you may have opinions, things they can do better. But I'm I'm curious, you know, what do you think the future of remote work looks like with everything going on with the pandemic? And and if, you know, so that's like two-part questions. Like one, what do you think the future of remote work looks like? And two, um, what do you think more places? I know you're still at HashiCourse. You're not in the, you're in the same boat I am where you kind of suffered at places that don't do it as well. But, you know, you mentioned RFCs. I'm just curious if there's other things you think other companies could learn because Hashi, HashiCorp 
puts all the stuff out there. So other companies can go and look at their RFC template and all that. So yeah, two part question. There you go. Yeah. In terms of where I see remote work going, I actually listened to this Freakonomics podcast on Spotify um, probably like a week or two ago, just while I was outside walking around. But their base, their stance on this was that remote work is here to stay for like US based companies. Um, that's mainly because around here, folks do a good job of using a set of tools that they have at their disposal, like Zoom, Slack, whatever. Um, and culturally, like, I would say culturally, a lot of folks in the US have that sort of mentality of I really enjoy being remote or, or I find benefits to it. Um, their take on it was in other countries, they may not want to work remote, right? So in places like China or India, where it's so dense, um, like housing is so dense, you don't have like a room at home to dedicate to your desk and to your office, right? You may only have like 200 square feet and there's no, there's no way you could kind of really section that off and have like some um, semblance of, of an office, right? So folks in those sorts of countries will eventually want to go back to work or they're already going back to work because the work from home model just doesn't work for them just based on the city that they're in, the density that they have. Um, but I guess like my personal take on it is, yeah, you're right. Like it, it does take a company that is intentional with remote for it to be successful. So my landlord, he worked for a company or he still works for a company here in the area. Um, and in the beginning of the pandemic, just like a lot of companies had said, it was like, okay, like go home for two weeks, you know, take, take a monitor if you want to, but we'll be back in like two weeks, right? When, when COVID hit and fast forward, now we're like two or three years out. Um, and folks were working from their kitchen tables, they had kids around, they had dogs around. And that sort of suddenness of it and not being prepared for it caused folks to not understand like time boundaries is like one big thing. So folks were inviting him to meetings at like 11pm, not knowing that that was like end of day for him. You know, usually he would be home, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even be online. Um, but the expectation now was that, okay, you have a laptop, you're able to log in from home. Yep. Like, you can call into these meetings. Do you think there are things that you've seen HashiCorp do that are good than other companies? You know, and that's a very like, um, it's almost like, you know, it's a very egotistical statement, you know, but I think there's a lot of things that y'all do that are really good. Do you have like one or two things you think are really good that you think almost any company universally could benefit from? And yeah. it could be, I will say, I mean, it could be any company or it could just be any tech company. Yeah, I think the the one thing was the one that you had mentioned. So having that RFC template to kind of write down ideas and be able to communicate things in an asynchronous way and have it be written down is super important to us. And it makes it easier for folks across company or across the company, across time zones to comment and give their feedback on what you've written up. Um, but the sort of, it's like a double-edged sword, right? Because Back when I started here, there weren't that many documents or things to look through. Now there's like thousands of these, not just RFCs, but like documents related to anything, right? And, and finding them and knowing where to go to look for them is like the next big issue. So whether that's in like Confluence or whether that's in Google Docs or someone's like Apple notes or something, right? Like you don't know where to go to look for a specific piece of information. And that makes it very hard. Um, the second piece of it is, I would say like just the organization of Slack can get super overwhelming. So at HashiCorp, I think we've also published it in our Ways We Work um, site, where we talk about different prefixes we add to these chat. Um, to these Slack channels. So some of these are like, if you want to talk about a specific topic, uh, we have these like talk dash channels, like talk outside, um, talk cars, um, things like that. And then there's other channels that are more like project based. So projects are, um, the project based ones are maybe for like, um, like a sprint or two of work. 
where you're working with different people that you normally don't chat with in your own team room. Um, and these are more like ephemeral rooms for that particular project. There's obviously team rooms, um, but having some sort of standard for what this may look like makes it super easy for folks to, to organize Slack where they're in, you know, 80, 90% of the, the day communicating with their coworkers and talking to them. I like it. I love all the prefixes too. The Slack prefixes are a huge help. Last question. I said this was going to be the last one without the brief. What's your favorite talk channel? Because I was all about the talk flying channel, like showing up and being like, oh, there's a bunch of pilots here. Uh, that was fun. So the yeah. talk flying was my favorite. I think mine would have to be a toss up between our talk pets channel, where folks post pictures of their pets um, or someone else's pets or any sort of pet adjacent funny TikTok that they found on the internet. Um, and then the second one would be talk outside. I really enjoy, you know, going hiking and camping and stuff and seeing what, where everyone else is adventuring to and, and where I might want to go next. Um, so just seeing all those pictures from everyone in the talk outside channel, which is basically geared around, you know, camping, outdoors, backpacking, that sort of stuff. Um, I really enjoy both of those channels. Awesome. And I'll plug HashiCore again on this. I think that's a great thing that they did being a fully remote company being able to capture some of that things, some of the things, the conversations that happen that are kind of water cooler chats or hallway chats. They do capture that remotely. Alvin, thank you very, very much for taking the time. Yep. Yeah. It was, it was a pleasure being on this podcast with you. I'm happy to chat any, anytime. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Fish Shells. For show notes from this episode and more information about the show, visit leetrout.com. Music production by Harun Sarang. We'll see you next time.